The reading this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 56, starting at verse 14, 57, sorry, 14. <clears throat> and if you're using the church Bibles, that's page 745. Whilst you're finding that to explain um, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we meet a high and mighty God full of righteous anger with those who are insincere and yet we also will meet with that same God who earnestly, eagerly seeks out the humble and the contrite in heart that want to follow God with sincerity. So there is a contrast. And it will be said, build up, build up and prepare the road Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed, and I punished them, and I hid my face in anger, and yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their willful ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Shout it out aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do, not, you do as you please and you exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this kind of fasting which I have chosen? To lose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them 
and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And if you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing figure and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, and if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thanks be to God for his word. Amen. Thanks, Martin, very much for reading, and uh, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here this morning. And uh, we're carrying on our series looking at the book of Isaiah, um, a 10-week series focusing on the back um, few chapters of the book of Isaiah, this amazing book which I um, introduced a few weeks ago. I guess the big theme of this book is how can God in all his glory be interested in you and me. It's a massive book with an amazing subject. And we're looking at uh, the third talk of ten, I believe. Um, And it's quite a long passage, as you saw. Uh, In two weeks' time, I'm going to come back to just look at two or three words, two or three verses in that longer reading, focusing on the issue of social justice. But today is really carrying on the themes we've been looking at in previous weeks. Uh, Before I pray, just to give you a, a reminder where we've been, I guess that first week was understanding that God is a great rescuer. Do you remember I painted a picture of how big God was and yet the fact that he's interested in you and me? An amazing God who wants to rescue us. Uh, Last week was a challenging week, wasn't it? It was a difficult passage to teach. It's a difficult passage for us to hear because it was all about conviction that you and I need to be rescued. It's not a message that we want to hear. Do you remember I was uh, showing us that there is a God, there's only one God, he is alive And he's created lots of good things for us to enjoy. And I try to help us to see that sometimes we take good things and we let them become God in our life. And because there's only room for one God in our life, that means God becomes a good thing. And the Bible describes that as idolatry, taking something, often a good thing, and letting it be God. And so God gets forgotten or becomes less than God. If you remember, I I gave us that definition of an idol. I'll just read it again. Anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. 
An idol is anything that has control in my life, whatever, whoever, that moves, rouses, and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my energy, my money, and ultimately my heart to, and I do it effortlessly. And then, of course, that's that same quotation underneath, but when you replace the idols in our life with God, you see that's the purpose that which, for which God created each of us, to live with him at the center, for him to so rouse our hearts that it gives us great joy to live for him. And we looked, didn't we? We went to Romans chapter 1, uh, where Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about a great exchange that's happened. We've exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like animals, plants, reptiles, and we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. A great swap has taken place. But the, the reading finished last week, if you have a look at chapter 57, verse 13, but, and there was hope at the end of the difficult news we had to hear, but the man who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And so if we started with God is the great rescuer, and last week was conviction that you and I need rescuing, this week carries on the logic. There's a promise to you and me if we humble ourselves. If you have a look at our passage today, it's a long passage, isn't it? Chapter 57, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 58, verse 14. But those two verses become kind of bookends that hold everything together. Notice what they say. The reading began, and it will be said. And the reading ended, for the Lord of the mouth, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're looking at a promise today, and the reason that the promise that we're looking at is such a game changer, such a life changer, is because of who speaks it. And you see that at the beginning of the reading and at the end, which gives us confidence that this promise isn't just an intellectual promise that we can know, but it's something that can genuinely change each of our hearts. So let's pray and let's ask that God would not just help us understand what this means, but to believe it for ourselves. Loving Father, we so often struggle to understand the promises that you've made and yet they are promises that don't just change our minds but if we accept them will completely transform our lives so I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would show us the promise that is in this passage and that it would become real to each one of us this morning Amen Uh, I don't do alliteration very much um, but I have this morning three P's this morning really simple three P's privilege problem and a promise okay here's a privilege i want us to watch a short video it's about five minutes long just helping us to reflect on who god is chapter 57 verse 15 as you reflect on that video for this is what the high and exalted one says he who lives forever whose name is holy i live in a high and holy place just think about god for a moment as you saw that video Here is someone who knows everything. Someone who cannot learn anything. Those of you who are taking exams, that's an amazing truth, isn't it? He cannot learn anything because he knows it all. He sees everything. He understands everything. He can do anything. There's nothing that limits him. There's nothing that catches him by surprise. He doesn't sleep. He's not dependent on anyone for anything. He cannot lie. He cannot make a mistake. That is the God that we meet in this passage. And yet, verse 15a, he says, I am the high and lofty one. I live in this high place. But also, 
with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Contrite is a word that describes a person who could admit they're in the wrong. You get God and his greatness who also says he can live within you and me. That is astonishing. It's exactly where we were two weeks ago as we began this Isaiah series. Now, why is that extraordinary? Well, you go back to the beginning of Isaiah. When this prophet Isaiah, the spokesperson for God, he meets God. Do you notice what he said? I don't know if you know this. In Isaiah chapter 6, he cries out, verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah cries out because he can't possibly look to God. Such is God's holiness, such is God's perfections. And they just show up his inadequacies, his brokenness. And yet in this passage, we seem to see something different, don't we? We've seen a picture of God in his awesomeness. And yet the reading also says he will live within you and I if we humble ourselves. But what God is doing through Isaiah is he's preparing God's people and he's preparing our hearts for what's to come. You fast forward to the death of Jesus. What, was ha- what happened when Jesus cried out on the cross? There was this big no entry sign in the temple, wasn't there? It was a giant curtain that separated God from people. You can't just walk into God's presence, such is his holiness. It separated us from God. We couldn't know him in the same way. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, what did he cry? It is finished. And at that moment, that no entry sign, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. And suddenly we had access to God. So the problem is I had, I cannot look on God because he's too holy for me. It's not a problem that you and I have if we've put our trust in Jesus. Because his death in our place allows us to see him face to face in all his glory. It's an astonishing truth. That's the privilege of knowing God. That's where we were in the first week. But you notice in our passage there's a problem too. The problem of knowing God. I just want the tech team just to stick up a second, very short video for a minute. Is it going to come? Do you know, I wouldn't wouldn't normally do this, but I am actually really frustrated. No, I actually am. Do you know how long we take to prepare these talks every week? And every week we talk to the tech guys and we want everything sorted. Because when you get things right, it helps us to learn. It's, It's just not good enough. It really is. I'm sorry, guys. I'm really sorry. But it's not good enough. We work really hard here, and when the technology doesn't work, I don't know why I bother. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) I am just joking, by the way. The tech team do a great job. I want to illustrate something. That one might have shocked you a little bit. (laughs) I was struggling not to laugh through that. (laughs) And the lady is right. If I was genuinely angry, we would need to pray. Absolutely. And perhaps you ought to pray for me. Here's a point I want to make, though. When we get angry and we fly off a handle at something silly, sometimes it's just an expression of my heart. I'm angry because the tech stuff's not working, so I have a rant. When God gets angry, it's not like that. It's never like that. Because God's anger is a function of his holiness. He never flies off a handle in rage. God only gets angry because he sees everything perfectly. He's perfectly holy. And so whenever he gets angry, he has a right to get angry. And do you see in our passage, 57 verse 17, 
I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. As one writer has said, it's partly because sin doesn't promote our own wrath that we don't believe that it promotes the wrath of God. See, if I rebel against God and go about life my own way and it doesn't really bother me, of course I think it's ridiculous when I read of God getting angry. It doesn't bother me, so why does it bother God? What's the big deal? But when I understand how much it bothers God, because I understand how perfect he is, and I understand how terrible it is when I live for something that's not God, suddenly I can see my own sin in a whole new light. Do you remember last week I showed you this? It's my dishwater from doing the washing up last week. I said to you, can you describe this in one word? And some of you said, disgusting. The problem with any illustration is it can't really help us to fully understand. If that's a picture of sin, yes, it's disgusting, but that's not a real picture of sin. Our sin is so much worse. Our rebellion against God is so much worse than dirty dishwater. But you see in verse 17 of chapter 57, I was enraged by their sinful greed, yet they kept on in their willful ways. You see, there's a persistence, isn't there? Our rebellion of God is a persistent thing. I keep not wanting God to be Lord in my life. And we looked at it in that passage in Romans chapter 1, didn't we? This exchange that goes on. Now last week it was immorality. We can swap God for something good and let something good become God in our life. It's immoral behavior. I don't want God in my life so I'm going to live for something else. But you know, you and I have a bigger problem necessarily than our immorality Sometimes our morality can be just as bad. Have a look at chapter 58. Martin read it brilliantly here because he, came, he, got, he got across, I think, the force of what was being said. Shout it aloud, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. That me there is emphatic. They genuinely are seeking God. But... They're eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. So here's a group of people, God's people, who are earnestly seeking him, but they're not seeing any blessing. Notice verse 3, they say then, look, why have we fasted and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, God, and you've not seemed to notice? And God gives them a response. Second half of verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends up in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what I call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Here's the thing we often struggle with. It's not just our immorality that keeps us from God. So often it's our morality. It's our trying to do good to kind of please God. But the deeper problem is we don't always see that. It's completely counterintuitive, isn't it? You can see why me doing bad things, rejecting God, offends him. We don't so easily see how our morality, trying to be good enough for God, offends him. But if you go back to our Romans passage, what did we learn in Romans chapter 1? Furthermore, 
just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So this is the key thing. God gave them over to a depraved mind so they don't do what they ought to be done. So one of the things about sin, it doesn't just make us do bad things. It changes our minds and we no longer can see clearly. So things that bother God don't really bother us. And one of those things is our morality, trying to be good enough for God. Because God is far too good for my goodness, however great it is. Or my badness, however great it is. I'm never going to be good enough for God. And you look at another prophet, Jeremiah, a contemporary of Isaiah. He says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? What's he saying? He's saying, my heart doesn't understand why my morality is not good enough for God. And I can't see clearly anyway. But right at the heart of my problem is my heart. It was John Calvin who said, the human heart is an idle factory. Because we always, we're always taking good things and letting them become God. And God then is becoming just a good thing. And we do it all the time. See, there's an amazing privilege we looked at in the first week. The privilege that God wants to know you and me. But last week we had that really hard-hitting problem. And we see it again in our passage. That I can't know God because of my immorality. And I can't know him because of my morality. Because I can never be good enough. But here's the amazing thing. Here comes the promise. The promise that does enable us to know God. I want you to think about the significance of the word but. We use but all the time, don't we, in conversations. Um, I was thinking about excuses that we can all make for being late to work. Uh, here's, here's one for Helen. Sorry I'm late for work, but... I've heard of the dog ate it. I've never heard of the cat changing the clock. But perhaps that's the case. But is a very powerful word, isn't it? Here's another one. I went on a website that actually writes out the ten best excuses for people being late. This one came up. Can you believe it? (laughs) I'm sorry I'm late. I dreamt that I was already at work. Apparently that's true. Someone who's got too much free time has worked out in America. The percentage of people who, when go to work and say to their boss, sorry I'm late, this is the excuse they give. And it's over 10% apparently. Find it hard to believe, but there we are. We use but when delivering hard news, don't we? Um... You get to work and your boss hauls you in and says, you know, I really appreciate you coming to the company. You've been fantastic. You've had better sales than everybody else. We really like you working. All my colleagues like working with you, but there's no place for you anymore. Maybe you've been at the receiving end of hard news. I was at the receiving end of some hard news when I was 11 years old. I had a girlfriend. She was called Beth. I was on holiday in the Isle of Wight sailing with my family and Beth wrote me a letter. I was absolutely thrilled. And as I unpacked this letter, as I read it through... Inside, I found out all the things she thought was wonderful about me, and I thought this was absolutely brilliant. And I kept reading, and I got really excited, because as a lover role, when, as it were, you've fallen in love, it's amazing. And I read on, and then in the second or third page, I forget where, what did it say on the back? But the relationship's over. I was really upset. I genuinely was. Because here was a person I thought really cared about me, but they suddenly stopped caring. And we get it in apologies all the time, don't we? We apologize sincerely to someone. I'm learning this in marriage all the time. I'm really, really sorry. But then you say, but. And it's sort of trying to soften the fact that you're not actually that sorry because you found a weakness in somebody else. But is a powerful word, isn't it? We'll have a look in our passage because we see but used again in chapter 57, verse 18. This time, though, but is used positively. I have seen their ways, but... I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. 
It's an amazingly powerful but, isn't it? And you get them actually, if you look out for the word but, you get them loads of times through the Bible in really important places. But, and it's a game changer. Notice two things in that verse, 57 verse 18. Notice when God promises to heal, it's all his work. He says, I will heal. I will guide. It's not something we do by trying to be good so that he accepts us and lets us in. It's his work. I will. Notice the second thing. He says, I've seen their ways, but I will hear them. And perhaps we're thinking, well, does that mean God just lets them off? They've repeatedly turned their back on him. Is he just going to ignore them? And is he just going to let their rebellion go and just say, never mind, I'm God and I love you, so just come back? Well, at the beginning of our reading, we've got this amazing kind of entrance. Verse 14, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. God is kind of getting really excited. He's saying, get ready. Because something amazing is about to happen. And that amazing thing we see pictured in chapter 58, verse 9. Despite our repetitive rebellion against God, God says this, Then you will call and the Lord will answer. And the staggering truth is we don't deserve that. I will call and he will answer. But what God was doing is he was preparing his people for a future event. I want you to think of a time when somebody else called, but this time there was not an answer. You go to the cross. Jesus hangs on the cross. He cries out again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to God. But in that moment, he doesn't get an answer. Because in that moment, the wrath, the right anger of God, not a flying off the handle, irrational wrath and anger because the PA is not working, a genuine anger, that anger falls on his son instead of me. That anger falls on his son instead of you. Jesus Christ, who was perfect, called out to his heavenly father in his moment of darkness and he did not hear an answer. So that God's imperfect children you and me, can call out to God when we don't deserve it, but we do get an answer. Do you see in verse 8, it talks about the righteous one will go before you. What's Isaiah saying? Through God, he's saying, in the future, one will come who is the righteous one, the one who God has promised, and he will do everything that you can't do. He'll pay for your immorality. He'll also pay for your morality because he will be perfect because you can't be. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. See, it's a privilege, isn't it? That despite our very real problem, God is still faithful to his promises. That is what the book of Isaiah is all about. It's what this passage is about. It's about what the whole book is all about. And in chapter 58, verse 11, if you look down, you see this amazing picture of restoration. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Do you know the astonishing truth that we find here is, I don't need to do good so that God loves me. And I don't need to go through the whole of my life feeling guilty that I'm not good enough. That's the whole point. All this passage teaches is if we call, 
he will answer. And that is a staggering truth. As we close, just have a look at the the two if-then pairs. You look at verse 9 and 10, and verse 13 and 14. You get these if-then pairs. If, dot, 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 then. Well, the if that he is speaking of here is giving our hearts to God. It's listening to his voice. It's living a life of obedience. If, and we do all of that, not to please him, but in response to what he's already done for us. If God becomes Lord in my life, then... And what's the amazing promise you get in chapter 58, verse 14? If then, then you will find joy in the Lord. It's a hard truth to understand, isn't it? And so often we think, there are lots of good things in the world that I want to live for. But every single time we let a good thing become God, and God then becomes a good thing, that good thing will steal our joy. Not because it's not a good thing, but because it was never designed to be the ultimate thing. But if we let God be the ultimate, because he is ultimate, and we then enjoy good things, that, this passage says, is the source of all joy. If God is number one, then you will know joy. There's no catches. There's no buts. It's simple call. If you will call on my name, then I will hear your voice. And that, friends, is one of the most amazing promises, the most amazing promise that anybody could ever hear. I live in a high and lofty place, God says, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit.